0: So this evening, I would like to continue a little looking at the Eightfold Path, and again, taking it here and there. And so now I'd like to, just briefly, because I think Temple really gave a good idea of mindfulness yesterday, but in a way to look at cultivating mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path as appropriate Mindfulness. And the first thing, because it's samasati, to see that sati, one of its uh, important meaning is to remember. So in a way, this is a function. Basically what you do all day long (laughs) during the retreat is cultivating samasati, remembering to come back. Remembering to come back to the breath, to the body, to the sound, to the loving kindness. Whenever you come back, you cultivate appropriate mindfulness. So this is one of the important idea and function of sati, of appropriate mindfulness. So in a way, to me that's what is interesting. When we first start to meditate, it's like we're swamped by thoughts. It's like we are in this kind of washing machine of thoughts. You know, and then we go into the dryer of thoughts. You know, and you feel quite kind of, quite, and you think, well, why should I meditate? This is not fun. But then the sati start to ground itself, start to stabilize itself. And then, hmm, I could come back you start to have more choice. Instead of being in the maelstrom, you can feel a little more like, hmm, like a post. And then, mm, yes, you go a little, but you come back. You go a little, and you come back. And then, the thing is more about what you find in the London underground. Mind the gap. <laughs> and it's a bit the same. How far do we go? How soon do we come back? And this will a lot has to do with our uh, condition. If we have intense condition, then we're going to go for a long time. If we have light condition, then it's so easy to come back. So I say we have to also see that we're building the power of sati. We're building the power of appropriate mindfulness. So that when it's habitual and when it's intense, it can still emerge and keep, still help us in those state. And also what is in pro- interesting with appropriate mindfulness is that there is nothing we cannot be mindful of. So in term of practice, this is really a wide field as Temple mentioned in yesterday, body, feeling tone, states of mind, mind objects, everything we can be mindful of. So there is no sacralization of any object, that it be the breath, the body, the sound, the thought, whatever it is. We can be mindful of it. But then the question is, how are we mindful? And that's where the Sama comes in. The Sama is appropriate, whole, authentic. And so in a way, looking at the different aspect of the mindfulness, and one of it is ethical discernment to see that appropriate mindfulness as some aspect of ethical discernment. Because we could be mindful, and we could be a mindful serial killer. You know I mean? You would be very mindful, you know, killing the person. But that I would not call it samasati. So I think we have to see that comes with the mindfulness, this ethical discernment. And I think maybe this is what led me onto the path. When, before I even started to meditate, I was interested in spirituality. And I was 18, I was living in London, living kind of, you know, finding some temporary jobs. And one of my favorite activity was to go to bookshops, spiritual bookshop, and steal spiritual books. <laughs> Until... Some Samasati, I feel, started to come in as I read these spiritual books that stealing them was really not going together. Something which did not match. And so I decided I am not going to steal spiritual books anymore. But at the time, the only way I could do that was actually through restraint. So I stopped going to spiritual bookshop for a while until I could get a hang of it. (laughs) Then another one, another aspect of samasati is wholesome stability. And to me, in a way, this is one of the important things we do when we sit and walk and are on a retreat we are really cultivating stability. And I know you sit there and nothing happens. But something is happening. You are really, to me, this is one of the, the gifts, this is one of the riches of samasati, of meditation. Is that as we sit, as we bear sitting here, as we walk, then we cultivate an inner posture of stability. And that stability, that ground, is going to really help us in daily life. And I find for myself, whenever I go into the world and I might meet, you know, difficult circumstances, that's my refuge. Like let's say I go to a committee meetings. this is... I mean, if you can practice samasati in a committee meeting, you really made it. You're really on the way to awakening. And so you are in this committee meeting, and you start to see two people kind of like, you know, power struggle. And then you start to feel... And you feel really kind of, your figure, getting unpleasant. Even if it's a Buddhist committee meeting, (laughs) that happens too. And what I do generally is just to go to that ground, to that stability which comes from this appropriate mindfulness. And then creativity can come in. So I'm not destabilized by the uncomfortable, unpleasant feelings. And I just try to see how can I help in this situation? How can I find some way for the two people to meet each other, to listen each, to each other so that kind of the aggressivity can go down and then some creative solutions or so creative listening can happen. But only if we have that wholesome stability within us can we do that and I think it's an important function of what we do when we sit in meditation. Then you also have an exploratory probing quality. And to me, the mindfulness helps us to, in you know, we start to ask questions. What is going on right now? So instead of kind of getting lost in the story you're telling yourself, wait a minute, what is going on right now? And also to kind of notice how long is this going to last? To me, this is very interesting. This is really, yesterday, Temple was talking about Anicca. But Anicca is not this kind of, you know, floating in the sky. Anicca, as a practice, is you are in your daily life. Like what happened to me quite recently, because my mother is losing a little of memory, so I have to do more things for her, so that I become her memory, in a way. And so we had to go to this pre-op meeting before she had a cataract operation. And so, you know, she listened to the guy, he put drops in her eyes, and she was not sure about what totally was going on, although I was trying to explain a little in the background. Then we leave, we had to wait a long time, and we're in the car. And she says, my eyes, I can't see. I don't think it's a good idea to have that operation if I don't see now. So I tried to explain to her that he said it would pass, but in the evening she had to be patient. But I don't see now, this is not a good idea. <laughs> so I was going to my ground, trying not to raise the voice in order to make her understand better, just trying to be calm and trying to say, it will pass, be patient. All right, I'll be patient. And when I came back home, I really felt heavy. I really felt like, this was a tough one. You know, and I could feel she was unhappy and I couldn't, you know, do much about it. So I felt, you know, this feeling of heaviness. And I thought, hmm, how long is this going to last? And I did not do anything special. I just went about my day doing all the things. And suddenly, it just lifted. It just gone. And I felt very light again. And to me, that's what is interesting with the mindfulness to have that probing quality, that questioning quality. How long is this going to last? And if it goes, then I don't worry about it. If it stays, then I think, hmm, there is a problem. (laughs) Now, maybe I must look at it, the condition, and do something about it. Also, I think with the mindfulness, again, to, to probe, to explore. For example, when you have sensation in the body, then we can really often quite overreact, sometimes for good reason, sometimes not. And I remember recently I had an attack of pain. I, had, I felt I was driving and suddenly I had pain everywhere. I felt like the space outside of me also was painful. So there was this huge pain, and I barely made it home, driving. And then I was really worried. You know, I thought, so much pain. You know, I'm going to die in the next, you know, 10 minutes or something. And I thought, wait a minute. Mindfulness, inquiry. Then I thought, is my head in pain? Body scanning. So I look at my head, no pain. Look at the neck, no pain. The arms, the hands, the torso. Hmm. And then I could see the pain was kind of actually localized. And then it was much better. And then I take some painkiller, and it passed for a little while. I thought, okay, I'm not going to die tomorrow. (laughs) And then I kind of did things with it. But it's just to see, if you don't explore with the mindfulness, then generally you know, it amplify, it magnifies, then it gets quite hard to deal with it. Then there is this interesting um, example or um, to, to show what mindfulness, Samasati, is like. And in the Pali Canon it says it's like a plowman plowing the field. And the plowman plowing the field has actually three things he needs to do or three things that happen. First, he needs clarity of direction. I mean, if he starts to do this, he's not going to really plow his furrow. So as we sit in meditation, as we cultivate mindfulness, it gives us clarity of direction. We start to know more and more, where am I going? What is important for me? What are the values that sustain my life? Then also the plowman has to apply the right pressure. If he puts too strong, then he gets stuck in the earth. If it's too light, he doesn't really dig his furrow. So he must have right pressure, balanced. So in a way, the mindfulness we're trying to develop is balanced. So I think we have to be very careful or what I would call heavy mindfulness. Well, actually, you use mindfulness or not being mindful in a critical manner. So actually, mindfulness kind of get stuck with uh, judgment. And then, you are not mindful, you are not compassionate. I am not doing this. Uh, I mean, it's kind of gets really heavy and it's kind of like then there is this police person on your shoulder kind of watching for the next things to jump on that you are mindful of. So you have to be very careful. I think we have to be very careful that the mindfulness we, have, we are developing is balanced. It has this kind of balanced quality. And the last one is that the plowman, as he plows, Reveal by digging. And to me, this is in a way one of the effects of the mindfulness, that actually the mindfulness reveals things to ourselves. It can reveal very beautiful positive quality to see that, "Oh yeah, I can have wise moment, I can have compassionate moment, peaceful moment." And then also it reveals the difficult aspect of ourselves. But I think it reveals it in a balanced way so that we're not overwhelmed by what it reveals. But actually it gives us the impetus to how can I creatively engage with this difficult aspect of myself. Then the other thing I wanted to talk about was appropriate thought. Because, I mean, I feel that as we sit in meditation, we have a lot of opportunity to cultivate appropriate thinking. And in a way, what is appropriate thinking? And if we look at the definition of the Buddha, and what monks is appropriate thinking, it is a thought of renunciation, the thought of non-ill will, the thought of harmlessness, these monk's is called appropriate thinking. So basically, it's not asking us to have this amazing thought about emptiness, amazing thought about dependent co-origination, whatnot. But just, can we have thoughts which are based, which are coming out? Of renunciation, can we have thought which are uh, full of non-evil? Can our thought be of harmlessness? And to me, this is in a way, when we sit in meditation, I think it helps us to see what am I thinking? I think this is an important function. That's why. I really think we should be careful of this idea of no mind, no thought. And that it's more actually as we focus, as we try to be mindful, then we can be mindful of our thought. Because that's part of the mindfulness. That's one of the foundations of mindfulness. And then we start to look at what kind of thought do I have? And what is the taste of that thought? And also what that thought is going to make me say, how that thought is going to make me act. Because at one level, the thought, is really just a little electricity in the brain. At that level, it's very ephemeral. It's very unsubstantial. But then its power can be so great. And so the Buddha is saying, on the Eightfold Path, it encourages to cultivate thought of non ill will, of harmlessness, of renunciation. And harmlessness, it's about kind of how are my thoughts, the way I think, does it harm myself, does it harm others? And what is interesting in this harmful thinking. I would say most of the time we're not kind of, you know, thinking really nasty thing, I'm going to kill that guy, you know, I'm going to get rid of that one, and you know, I'm going to put a nuclear bomb in their toilet or whatever. You know, you're not generally doing that. But what is interesting is to look at what I would call a kind of more what is the tone of our thought. What are we doing? What what is going on? And often, actually, we have certain habits which are quite painful mental habits for ourselves and for others. And, and, and a simple one, as simple as planning. We plan. And planning actually can have two consequences. One of yourself and one of, on others. The one on yourself, I mean, I know for myself, that I, I have a tendency to have uh, stomach pain. And once I went back from Korea and I lived uh, in the West, it was much better, so I was quite fine. And then one day, I experienced the same pain I had before. But I thought, the food is okay, what is going on for me to feel that pain? And I realized, actually, I was constantly planning. It was the first time we were going to go to South Africa. And two months ahead of going, I was going, I need to do this, I must not forget that. I must remember to not forget to do this, to do that. And it was non-stop. And actually just the mind going non-stop in that way actually gave me that pain in the stomach. And as soon as I saw that, I dropped it. And to me, this is one of, in a way, the thing about suffering if we're really mindful of suffering, then we, we are causing the suffering to ourselves. if we really know it. I am doing this. And it's like if you touch a fire, you just let it go because in that moment you are so mindful that it's causing this and at the same time you do not need to do it. You can plan a bit but you don't need to plan to such an extent that it makes me here. And in a way, the planning, also in terms of others, is that if you like to plan, generally you like to organize. (laughs) And I remember I used to live in a community in England, and we used to have these meetings, you know, personal meetings, you know, once a week, 10 of us. And one day, this guy was so fed up with me. For 20 minutes, he just said, You know, I am fed up. You organize us all the time. I'm fed up with you. You really, you know, this is too much. Stop doing it. You know, and I was sitting there. Ooh,
1: you know?
0: But then I thought, He has a point. <laughs> I do like to organize. And I thought, Maybe I organize too much. And for me, although it was not very pleasant. It was a great learning experience, because after that, I was much more careful. And then I could realize when organizing was helpful and when it really was not helpful. And also it was less stressful for me. I did not have to organize all the time. So I kind of had more time to do something more creative. So again, to see how you could have something quite innocuous and actually could have quite harmful consequences for yourself and others. And also looking at the language we use, because we're talking to ourselves, describing, commenting, and what is the tone of the language? Is it kind of really sharp and heavy to ourselves, to others? Can we make it softer? That I find it interesting. How can I In a way, play with that inner language that actually changes the way I feel, the way others might feel with me. Then also there is something which might seem that actually we need to do. This is a function of our organism, generalization, categorization. This is something evolution makes us do. We need to quickly know what is that. Is it dangerous? Not dangerous? But I think actually generalization, categorization can be quite harmful, especially toward others. The way we kind of, you know, way taint everybody with the same brush, you know. Like the English people think all French people eat snail, so they must be slimy. (laughs) And when I used to live in England, you had spring. And I dreaded spray in England because all the English people in the room would say, ah, rhubarb. We're going to have rhubarb pie. And I used to think, I can't eat the stuff. It's sour, it's horrible. And so I used to think, you know, these people, they like rhubarb. There must be a problem with them, you know. No sane person could like rhubarb but quickly you kind of associate things with other things and then this is it. You kind of make a judgment about them and then you kind of condemn them or you condemn a whole group. They're all like that because you met one who might be like that in some circumstances. To this day I remember when I started to travel on my own when I was uh, 20, in a train in Turkey, in the 70s, I meet this French guy, and he tells me, little girl, be careful of the Japanese. They're so aggressive, they're very nasty. I thought he was a bit weird. I thought, don't know about the Japanese, I never met any, but it really stayed with me, the fact is, he said it like that, so strongly. And many years later, I go to Japan, And I've never met such gentle, friendly people. (laughs) And I thought, you see, it's also, what is it that we see? What is it that we provoke in others? So to me, that's one of the things we have to be really careful about. They're always like this, they never do this. And you kind of, this is it, you kind of. So in a way, to see again, back to the condition, back to the specificity, of each human life, of each encounter. Then you have non-ill will. So basically, the question is, are we aggressive, are we vengeful, are we resentful? You see, I think Buddhists, they don't get angry. Angry is a big no-no. You know, anger, it's bad. So then the Buddhists, they're not angry, but they become resentful. Because you know, something happened, hmm, don't like it,
1: hmm.
0: But it's okay, I love everybody. <laughs> Even he, it's okay, I love him, it's fine, okay. Something else happened again, hmm. Ah, it's empty. It's empty, yes, it's empty of, yeah, yeah, it's empty, it's okay, I can deal with it from the place of emptiness. And then third time, you explode. So I think we have to see, we have to see that we might not, you know, be downright angry, but actually to see that the resentment. And resentment is, you kind of keep, you kind of keep it, you know on it, like a kind of a dog on a board, and it goes round and round. Instead of, with samasati, really to look, what is going on? Addressing it at the beginning, more than at the end, when it really will have amplified. And so in a way, looking at one of the things which often, really cause ill will is what I call rumination. You ruminate. So you ruminate on something from the past. They did this. That was awful. That was terrible. How could they do this? I would never do this. And then you bypass the present, you go to the future, and then you plot revenge. You know, the best way to say something which we cut to the quick. Not very compassionate, is it? Especially if we do this on meditation, on our meditation cushion, plotting revenge. But you know way to see the pain of the past, we can learn from it, but we cannot change it. We really cannot change it. But we do not have to bring it into the present, because generally the conditions are not there the condition are in the past. And in the future, often people don't do what we thought we could do, so then we would get them. And the only thing we can do is develop now stability, openness, mindfulness. Recently I read this wonderful little story. You have this you know, Zen teacher and his wife in the car, and they have a little kind of spat. And then she says something, and then he's very clever, very funny. And he thinks of this really amazing, funny, clever remark. So he's going to say it because it's so good. It has to exist as an utterance. And then something within he said, maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe this is not going to improve the situation. <laughs> and so we've uh, strength of mindfulness he resists and then the thing becomes a little better but often we have to see the force you know, the force of ill will the force of I want it this way or this is unfair or I'm suffering they should suffer too I mean we can convince that we have good reason to have thought so tainted by ill will And so I think, in a way, we really need stability in order to say, yes, I might have good reason to have this nasty thought, but do I want to continue to think in that way? Do I want to speak that way? Do I want to act that way? And then there is a last one. This is renunciation. And renunciation, I would say, there is restraint, contentment, let go, creative engagement. And I think restraint is very important. I think it's important to see that sometimes we have to restrain ourselves. We need to discipline ourselves. Uh, I read in this, um, in the newspaper, this little episode, where these two kids, 15 years old, think, wouldn't it be nice to go on holiday so we need money to go on holiday. Let's go and rob a brink van, a van which carries money for bags. Okay, why not? <laughs> and so off they go. That's you know, they, they want money, so they go into kind of, you know, uh, attack the van with tear gas. Mm-hmm. And of course it doesn't work and they end up in jail. And maybe when they got the first time the idea they should have a little restraint. This is not a good idea. The same, for example, if we have a tendency to drink alcohol and it's really not good for us, then in a way we have to stop. We have to restrain ourselves. Or if we have problem with food, it's kind of how can we help ourselves to be able to restrain ourselves in such a way that it's not going to amplify the desire. This is a thing with restraint. Can we do it with mindfulness, so that it doesn't make it worse? Because often that's a problem if you have this kind of restraint which fix in a certain way, it has the opposite effect. So he's having this kind of mindful restraint, seeing the danger, as the Buddha said, seeing the danger of that thought, that if I go on with it, it's going to have very painful consequences. Then we have also contentment. I think in renunciation, there is a certain contentment. There is a certain simplicity, and there is this wonderful sutta in the Pali Canon, when the it's called the Noble Lineage. It's in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the four, and the Buddha said there is this fantastic Buddhist lineage that you know really to become a. A disciple of that lineage and be part of the lineage is just amazing. The most amazing thing in the universe. So you really expect something really grandiose, you know, in order to be able to be part of the lineage of the Buddha. And what does he say you need to do to be part of it? Contented with your food, contented with your clothes, contented with your shelter, and... Happy to do meditation. That's not difficult. Or oh, is it? Is it? And what is interesting is that he's talking to the monks. And he's, there is a huge paragraph for each where it looks like the monk were kind of trying to have better food than the others and a little kind of more of this and less of that. Same with the clothes, they were trying to have kind of, you know, fancy cloths and, you know. And he's saying, you know, can you be content? with what you are given, instead of making really complicated. And I think, again, this is something we can easily do. What does it mean to be content? And I think back to a little of the meditation temple was making us do, appreciation. Can we appreciate what we have? Because often I feel we are in the comparison of what is missing. What is missing in my life? I had a friend. For many years, she was in that position of only looking at what was missing in her life. And she was so unhappy. And finally, one day, it shifted. And then she could see what was good in her life. And it just changed her life from one to the next. Within the same life, things did not change in her life. But what she looked at really changed. And that's to me, in a way, the key to contentment is, in a way, mindfulness of what is it I have, what is it I can enjoy. Then you have, in a way, renunciation as letting go. And to me, true renunciation, true letting go, is when finally there is no exaggeration. Because often, why do we want something? Why do we search for something? It's because we think, ah, this is so fantastic. I need to have this. My life is not a real life if I don't have this. And once I had this experience, I was in a taxi in Korea during the free season. So the taxi driver, and then I was uh, one of the rare Western nun in Korea at the time in the 70s, and he was very excited. So he was, what? You are a Western nun? Wow! What? What a renunciation! You know, so I was kind of worried a little, kind of you know, it looked a bit dangerous. You know, and you don't smoke, and you don't have children, and you don't go to party, and you don't drink, you don't eat meat. I was sitting there thinking, I don't want any of these things, you know? So for him, it was a great renunciation because he thought he could not live without this thing. Me, actually, I, did not, I could live without them and even more. I was not keen on them. So it's kind of, I could see that what is, uh, seems to be this amazing renunciation actually is not is back to this contentment, what is important in my life. And so I I think the thing is that these things were not attractive, not because they were not good per se, but because I was not exaggerating them. And so to me this is in a way the root of understanding renunciation is to see that often what happens is that we grasp. And to me, the root of renunciation is what I would call de-grasping. And I would say that when we sit in meditation, what we're actually doing is cultivating so that de-grasping can happen in small ways and in big ways. Let me see how it works. And the, what, I would make a difference between grasping and creative engagement. Let's say that this is very precious to me. It's a gold or diamond or it's the greatest truth in the universe. But what is important is I have got it. It's mine. I want to hold on to it. I don't want to share it with anybody. I want to keep it close. I don't want to lose it. So, I hold on to it like that. Then two things is going to happen. The first one, I'm going to get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> and this is a sign of grasping, is the fact that we get tension. But more than that, if I grasp in this way, I cannot use my head for anything else. So I am stuck to what I am grasping at. Then, what is the solution? First solution, you can cut the hand. But I think it's a bit drastic. Mm -hmm. So that's the ascetic path. Second solution, you get rid of the object. But the object is not saying, really, you want me, don't you? It just comes upon condition. So it's us who impute things in the object, not the object who is really calling out to us. That's not the problem of grasping, the object. And so I would say that what the meditation does, the Eightfold Path does, is actually to slowly open our hand. And then I can use the object, it can move. There is freedom, there is movement. And so what we have to see with the grasping is that as we grasp, we identify, I, me, mine. Then we solidify around what we grasp at, then we reduce ourselves to it, and then we magnify it, and that's a big problem. With grasping is that magnification, because when we grasp, two things happen, together or separate. One is proliferation, for example, I see this beautiful bell with this beautiful sound. So I can just in a way creatively engage, just see the bell, hear the sound, and just be there. Or I can grasp and think mm, this is a nice bell. <laughs> I would not mind having it. How could I take it to my room and try to you know, put it in the car, take it home, And then, you know, I start to scheme to get it. But then I'm not with the beauty of the bear. I am with the acquiring of the bear. I go into abstraction. And I think this is often a sign of grasping when we start to proliferate and we go into abstraction. The other thing we do is to exaggerate. When we grasp, either we exaggerate positively or we exaggerate negatively. This is fantastic. This is the greatest thing in the universe. And then, how long does it last? My first book. My first book, I was waiting for it. Oh, my first book, The Way of Korean Zen. Ooh, my first book. Ooh, it's going to change my life. You know. So every day for breakfast, I waited for that book. Finally, it arrived. I opened the packet, I looked at the cover, I looked at the back, it lasted two minutes. And then I still had to eat my toast, go to the bathroom, (laughs) do the dishes, and it did not change my life that much. So you know, it's to see how we magnify, how we exaggerate, or how we exaggerate negativity of ourselves or others. I am the most terrible person in the universe. Not just, you know, average, difficult. No, 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 I am the most awful, terrible, stupid in the universe. I mean, what can you do to that? Not much. (laughs) I mean, think like, you know, you have a little problem. You have a problem at the office and somebody said something or does something and you think, that guy, God, he's so difficult. And he's always difficult. If only he did not work in this office. If only he did not exist, you know. My life would be so much better. And you go you go home and you worry about it. You nearly have an accident. You back home, you do the dishes. You nearly break a plate because you think about it again. Your wife is talking to you, but... You can't hear it because you're so worried about you know, that guy is so bad, and you know, you should see what he did, and it was so awful. You go to bed, you still think about it, you can't sleep. But the question to ask is the guy did not ask to be in your head. You are keeping the person in your head yourself. I'm not saying he didn't do something bad. But what I'm saying is that by grasping, identifying, you are keeping the thing, and it's very painful. And it stops you also from being there for the person or for yourself. Instead of what I would call creative engagement, is to really see, what can I do? Is it a good idea to talk to the person on the moment? Should I just wait one day or two days and then talk to him? or talk to him with somebody else in order maybe to have more impact. And so in a way to me, what the meditation helps us is to start to make the choice. Do I grasp or do I creatively engage? And creative engagement is not detachment, is not indifference, but it's really being present to what is going on, and how can I be with this? How can I creatively engage with this? That it be myself, that it be other people, that it be situation, and I think again, in order to be creatively engaged, we will need the stability. We will need the ethical discernment. We will need just that, also that probing quality, and to me, the, the thing with grasping is that it reduces us. And in that reduction, there is no place for our creative potential. <laughs> and so, when, with the creative engagement, there is this stability, but also the openness. And with the probing quality, actually something we have maybe never thought before, can be created, can happen. And I'll just finish with a little story. A small story of creative engagement in action. So I am in France and I live above my mother. We live in this French style house. And and often in these little villages, you have these con men who pass by trying to sell this or that. And so this time it was paint they were going to paint a part of the house for very little. My mother loves a good deal. So she signed up and then she tells me about it. Mm -hmm. And so it's too late, so the guys start to paint. Two guys, 55ish, kind of roguish. And then after a day, my mother is very upset because the color is not right. So she comes to me. Can I do something about it, you know, this little lady, these two guys? So I said, all right, let's go So I go, my mother behind, Stephen behind, because he does not speak enough good French to deal with this kind of thing. And I I don't prepare anything. I just go in the stability, openness, creative engagement, let's go. So I go to them, I say, hmm, my mother... Is not happy, this is not the right color. And they say, well, too bad. That's the only color we've got. (laughs) So then I say, ah, so actually you are not real painter. Of course we are real painter. But I mean, if you are real painter, You should be able to mix color, and you should be able to have the right thing. Of course we are real painter. Of course we can mix color. Well, there it is. And they did it. The right color. (laughs) (laughs) Then I wanted to just ask one question. One question which was uh, about what I said the other night about the balancing of the different uh, enlightenment factor, either the calming factor or the energy factor. And so I think what we have to see, that if, when we sit meditation on a retreat, as I said before, we'll have different states. We'll have different level of energy each day, and also during the day. And then there is a question of how much do I accept and I'm just mindful of the state as it is. And how much do I try to transform it? And so I think, of course, we can try to transform it. So if you feel sleepy, I would recommend to, if you sleep, feel sleepy regularly, I would recommend to walk a little briskly, just a, a minute before you arrive in the room, or just kind of, you know, uh, some cold water on your face, something to kind of wake you up. So that when you start the sitting, you're a little brighter. If you are a little agitated, of course you could go one of the good methods. If you don't have too much pain, it's just body scanning, going through the body, then being aware of the whole body. Then in a way the thought, just in a way receding a little in the background. So of course we can do, explore, do this kind of thing. And at the same time, some time, we have to accept in a way that it doesn't seem to be working. I remember when I was in Korea, I was doing a three-month retreat, 10 hours a day. And actually, I decided to do more than that. So I was doing 16 hours a day and sleeping about six hours. So I really was practicing hard. I was really uh, great intention. And for two weeks, nothing worked. I was trying to do this questioning, either I was agitated, lots of thought, or either I was sleeping, nothing worked for two weeks. But I mean, in Korea, you don't leave, you just you know, sit there, no matter what happened, you sit there. So I just sat there my 16 hours a day. And then, after two weeks, we're just listening to a tape talk of a great master, And it just said just something about questioning. And it really resonated within me. And then the questioning just happened by itself. And that's what it showed me, that actually even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't seem to work, actually if we sit there and really try, it's still working. So I would say, We can try to to transform, but I think also sometimes just being, accepting, being with it. And then generally at some point, something will change. So, are there any questions? Yes. And then we might need... uh, Microphone, or can you speak yeah, loud enough?
1: Um, right at the beginning, you talked about ethical discernment. I mean, boy, that's, that's not exactly a guide, you know. I, that's how, you know, if, if uh, I think you gave the example of the serial killer, right? But, I mean, I mean ethically, he, you know, it, that doesn't work for him, right? Because those are his ethics. I mean, how how do I how do I use? Well, I mean, I, you know, I I'm comfortable with my ethics, so I, I guess is that what? I guess there's nothing else,
0: right? Oh no, no! I think it's very important to see that in uh, in the Buddhist tradition there is a definite ethical ethical guideline. I mean, you have many different set of precepts. So what I was saying about the serial killer is that he might be mindful, aware of what he was doing, but it would not, not be appropriate mindfulness from a Buddhist point of view because it would be harmful. What he did was really violent and negative and really not according to appropriate thinking. And that's one thing that you can, if you look at the ethics of the Buddha, and even the ethics that was developed after that by the Mahayana, the ethics is really based, it's not on rule and regulation, what you should eat or not eat, apart from the monks, but it's really about harm. It's very much based on harmlessness. And there is this wonderful text called the Sigalavaka Sutta, which is actually in the Pali Canon, the text for the lay people. But it's really practical down to how you earn your money, how you, how you are with your wife, how the wife is with the husband and the children, how the boss is with the servant and the servant with the boss. And with the servant is wonderful. He said that you know it should, they should get holiday, they should get treat, They should get work according to their uh, strengths. I thought it was quite advanced for his time. (laughs) So if you read, you can see, and basically what he looks at in the Sigalavaka Sutta is what what are the circumstances which is not going to help you to be ethical and to be harmless, and to be harmless to yourself and to others. And what is it that's going to help you to be beneficial to yourself and beneficial to others? Then if you look at the Bodhisattva precept that you have in the Mahayana tradition, which I translated from the Korean text, then what is very interesting there, again, is the precepts are really like, they say, a light in the night. They're really based on compassionate activities. But what they do there is actually back to looking at the intention. So, for example, for non-harming, they say you should not do it yourself, you should not create the means to do so, you should not create the condition to do so, you should not have somebody else doing it for yourself, and you should not do it in a roundabout way. So it's not, then it gets really kind of, and to me, it's kind of looking back to mindfulness, really looking at our action. What are the effects of our action? What are the effects of our thought? What are the effects of our speech? What are the effects of our livelihood? So it's not saying, you know, you must never do this, you must always do that. It's kind of really, and that's why I think that kind of ethics is quite challenging. Because it's kind of like what is more called situational ethics. But the bottom line is. Are you arming yourself and others? Are you compassionate to yourself and others? So, personally, I would say there is some kind of quite clear guideline in terms of ethics. Okay, yes.
1: Um, you mentioned uh, when you were discussing right thought. Appropriate thought um, being careful so I find sometimes on this retreat sometimes that, that feels comfortable that is I can allow a thought to arise and I can notice it and make a choice at other times I feel like the layers of conditions that I'm to be mindful of are so big that I can get anxious. So sort of a, you know, I, I notice the thought, and well, and basically it leads, it can lead to the vacillating condition for me, or just a lot of rigidity, like no thought, simpler. Do you have any, and then sometimes, so lately I've, I've been trying to encourage myself to make mistakes when I get in that
0: no.
1: condition. Like, just try it, you know, and see. Do you have any other suggested practices
0: for that? You see, personally, that's what I'm back to the thing to be careful of not using mindfulness as a judging mechanism. That I think we have to be very careful. I think there is a difference between mindful of where you're going and going to, ooh, I must be careful, I must be careful. To me, it's kind of more careful in terms of kind of, looking, you know, being kind of looking, but not wanting to, you see, we cannot be aware of everything at any given time. You know, why am I thinking this thought? Lots of reason. But what is more interesting for me is not, why are you thinking this? What is interesting is, how are you thinking it? So in a way, to be interested, in the shape, the languaging, and to me over time, by doing that, I became aware of the texture of the thought. That really became really interesting. So I was not kind of trying to stop thinking, but I was kind of still doing a bit my questioning, and at the same time, I could see where my mind went. Off it goes daydreaming, planning, judging, I mean, whatever it was doing. Then I would kind of, over time, being aware of the the texture so that you kind of see how it starts. You know? Because sometimes you'd find yourself at the end of the train of thought, sometimes you find yourself in the middle of it. And I think it's all fine, it's all fine. And then you find yourself at the beginning, and then you find how you go there. That I find is very interesting. So sometimes you, whoo, and then you just go because it's so it takes you, and because you might not have enough energy not to just shh, go with it. And sometimes you can wait a minute. Hmm. Maybe I don't have to go there. And actually, there is a natural. You don't have to force yourself. You know when you. I go back. But I think it also depends on the level of thought. You see, I think there is some thought which are light, some thought which are habitual, and some thought which are intense. The intense, forget it. They'll just be there, shh, like, like a beast, shh, coming back, coming back, you know. And then the only thing we can do with this kind of really intense thought Positive or negative, is just to create little space. Let me just go back for ten seconds, just ten seconds with the breath. Then, zzz, ten seconds with the
1: breath.
0: <laughs> and you have to accept that. That's what's going on. Something is going on. You have a, either shock to the system or you're worrying about something. Wrong. You have to accept that. But in by coming back time to time, then actually it does not magnify it. You don't have the amplification effect. Then you have the habitual thought. That's interesting. The habitual thought is where you can become more aware of where you go, how you go, and if it's useful or not, because not all thoughts are bad thoughts. Some are creative, useful, etc. So I think we should be also uh, follow you know, the thoughts which are quite creative. And then to see... how it starts, that gets really interesting. Some thought it's gooey, some thought "Ah," it's a little d some thought it's heavy, you know, it's different. And then the light one, personally I don't worry very much about it. It's just being human, just the mind goes here, goes there, and you see it and you can come back so easily. So I think, again, you have to see that according to the type of thought, You're not going to do the same thing. And I think I have uh, to stop here. And then there is a walking meditation, and then we'll have the final sitting at nine o'clock.